Welcome, I'm Dr. Robert Groves, your host for the Groves Connection podcast. The Groves Connection brings you intimate conversations with pundits, providers, patients, leaders, and laypeople, all to help us understand a contradiction. How can our healthcare system be both magnificent and yet so deeply flawed? We're going inside healthcare to talk candidly with those who know. What they have to say may delight, surprise, frustrate, or at times even anger you. But I invite you to get curious and listen to the truth about healthcare and those who want to fix it. Maybe the answers have been there all along. We just need to make the connection. Are you ready to connect? Amy Van Dyken, welcome to the Groves Connection. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is really cool. I'm excited. I'm a little nervous. Um, I'm not going to lie, but we'll have a good time. That sounds great. And I'm uh, I'm the one who should be nervous, but uh, let's take this one step at a time and see where it takes us. Uh, first of all, I want to say that I'm, I'm really uh, indebted to uh, Dr. Stroman for uh, connecting us uh, after... I interviewed her on one of the more recent podcasts. She's an amazing uh, physician and an amazing person, and it's a delight that she was connected to you because I I never dreamed that I would be able to get an Olympian on my show, and here you are. Uh, how many gold medals do you have to your name now? Um, I've got six gold medals, and I'm actually um, the first American woman to win four gold medals in a single Olympics. Yes. Um, it's never been beaten. It's been tied a few times. It's probably going to be beaten in Paris, hopefully, because I want to be there. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So we've got that distinction. And I'm the only American female to ever win the 50-meter freestyle. So. And I don't think you've ever won anything besides a gold, have you? But see, here's why. I am not a smart person. So if you <laughs> give me... If you give me more than one color, I get very confused. So, <laughs> you know, they just, they were very kind. <laughs> it had to be that way. Okay. That's right. That's right. You know what I, I what I would love to do is uh -huh. explore first uh, your back, you know, where you grew up. Where did you grow up? Right. How did you become an Olympia then? But but let's start in uh, uh, very young. Let's start in grade school. I mean, what were your interests then? What were you thinking? What was family life like? Oh my gosh, family life was awesome. You know, we always had that. We were outside to play all the time until the street lights came on, or until like mom had this bell that she would ring. And then all the kids would come running because everyone's bell sounded the same, right? So I yes. had a great childhood. It was amazing. Mom and dad. Uh, I had a younger sister who was six years younger than me and a younger brother who is six, uh, seven and a half years younger. Um, so I'm the old, I have oldest child and only child syndrome, which <laughs> that might have something special. to do with it. Yes. <laughs> we are special. Yes. Yes. We are very special. I, so yeah, so where I grew was up. This? Where, where, where is this now? This was in Inglewood, Colorado, oh, and yes. we lived, yeah, we lived in a great little neighborhood called Willow Creek, and I miss it so much because our house backed up to a green belt, so, like, we would go out and catch crawdads every day, and we'd mark them with, you know, like, uh, nail polish to see if we ever found them again, and so it was really fun. I walked to school, which was great, um, and that neighborhood is where I started swimming because there was two swimming pools, 
And that's what everybody did all summer, you huh. know, because it's in Colorado. So we don't have summer all, all year round like I do here in Arizona. Um, so, you know, you, you really relished it. And that's what kids did. And that's what I did. Did you start swimming on like swim teams? I remember when I was a kid, they had swim teams for even toddler, well, not toddler, but, but very young ages. Yeah, absolutely. I did. And, you know, it wasn't because I wanted to be an Olympic swimmer or be a swimmer at all. Um, I grew up with severe asthma and I've got oh. severe asthma. I've got all three types of asthma. So if I out quote unquote outgrow it, it's not going to be all of them. It'll be like one, you know, yeah, one, one yeah. part of it. So, you know, I grew up with that and my life was kind of different in the fact that like I couldn't go to friends' houses to spend the night because there would be allergens and I would end up in the hospital, right? So my house was the cool house because we had a walkout basement. And um, I just remember one day it was like first grade, right? And I went to school and everyone was inside for recess because I think it was a blizzard. And finally, one of my friends who I actually had a crush on, Timmy Harper, yeah. he's now a mounted police officer up in Canada. Hi, Timmy Harper. <laughs> um, he he actually asked me, he's like, why are you just so weird? And I'm like, well, where do you want to start, <laughs> Timmy Harper? <laughs> yeah. But he was asking about my breathing. And I remember going home and being so upset because that was the first time I realized that I really wasn't like everybody else. Yeah. So my mom talked took me to the doctor and the doctor said, listen, we hear water sports are great for asthmatics. Get involved. Yes. Right, because it as a pulmonologist, with... I, I it, that immediately made that connection. Yes, us as asthmatics, we don't we feel like we can't get air in, but it's actually we can't get air out. So if your yeah. face is underwater, you're getting that air out, right? So that's yeah, kind of how I air. explain it to people, and it kind of helps control your breathing. But the problem is, I'm I'm also allergic to chlorine. That makes it a challenge. You know, when I was training for the Olympics, I would have an inhaler at each end of a swimming pool just in case doors were always open oh fans goodness. were going yeah it was it was dramatic but let's go back to when i was six i was six years old and i started swim team diving team and synchro team right and yeah yeah i just diving team wasn't for me i'm like you want me to flip in the air no and i'm afraid of heights so no yeah, yeah. synchro i loved but i just couldn't get the body positions right right um, yeah. and then swimming I just fell in love with this is so funny I tell people this and they're like what and I actually have video evidence if we can find a beta machine somewhere in the universe (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh that takes me back yeah (laughs) that totally does doesn't it but yeah so you know I finished my first leg of the pool and I was 12 years old oh my goodness and at that moment everyone was clapping for me because they were happy that I actually finished I didn't have to be yanked out of the pool (laughs) and I just I told my dad next time I swim I'm gonna win thought I was crazy and when I was 13 years old I won my very first blue ribbon is that right and so what did you do to get ready for that I mean you're a kid I mean did did you focus did you have uh, drills I mean what did you do uh, so you know I would go to practice every day and I would just try to get better but one thing that I learned early on in my career if you will was visualization and I use it even huh. to this day so when I was a kid, you know, and I don't remember if it was my mom that was talking to me about it, but she would say, before you go to bed, you know, think about how fast you want to go and what you want to do. And so I did. And it got to the point later in my career where I was getting ready for the games. And even at games that I had never been at, I could picture in my mind what it was going to look wow. like, smell like, taste like, feel like, sound like. And I would make a race go perfect. I would make a race where I false started. I would make a race where I missed a turn. 
so that everything went wrong and my mind was already ready for it. So Interesting. I'm yeah. huge into visualization and always did that. And I think that's what helped me. My dad claims it's because I watched Rocky Four. <laughs> you were inspired, huh? Rocky I, apparently, I, I don't think that was it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the visualization thing is very interesting because on its surface, it sounds kind of woo-woo. But I have I don't know many athletes that have accomplished great things in their sport that haven't used that or don't use it today. I mean, it, it really is very common for athletes, uh, high-level athletes, to use that strategy. It really is because we can put ourselves, uh, you know, and I'm sure that this is, you know, what you've done as well, is you put yourself in situations that are awful, that if they happened in real life in a race, you would literally panic. Yeah. So you put yourself in that situation in your mind, and it's almost like your mind doesn't know that you didn't really do it. So it's like, oh, we've done this before. Let's do it again. And this is how we did it. Yeah. And it is a really cool thing. And here's what's really crazy. So as I got later in my career and I was in college, I wanted to break the American record. So for 50 meters, I wanted to go 21-7. So I put sticky notes everywhere. My roommates were just, they couldn't stand it. But 21-7 <laughs> everywhere. And my time when I went to the NCAAs in 1994 was 21.77. Oh my gosh! Al, and I broke the American record. Remarkable, yeah, that it's, really is remarkable. So, it, when did you start seriously training, and what did that look like? I started what I thought was serious training my senior year of high school because I knew the only way I could get to college was to get a scholarship. Gotcha. So I knew I had to do something. I started training twice a day. I would go into the pool for an hour and a half before school. And then after school, I would go in for two hours and train and then go home and eat and try to do homework and then pass out and do it all again. And yeah. that's, you know, it becomes a job. And I just, you know, decided that if this is what I'm going to do, I have to take it very seriously. When did you know that you had the potential to get to the Olympics. I mean, that seems like such a high bar. Um, I think it was probably my senior year in high school. I qualified for the 92 Olympic trials at our state high school swim meet. And I was like, maybe, maybe, maybe I could go to the Olympics. Yeah. And that's when I really started yeah. taking it seriously. I'll be darned. So the year that you really started seriously training, you found out that you potentially had the ability to, to make that team. And what, what does that look like if somebody's trying to make the Olympic team? How does how does how does that work? So, are you talking about the training or like the uh, the process to get to the Olympics? Like, what's the process? I mean, how do how do you get picked and you know noticed and whatever else? Well, and this is kind of how you tell someone who's um, making up a little lie, um, because we don't have a selection process in swimming. So I've heard so many times people go, "Yeah, I was picked to do the relay," and I'm like, "No, you weren't." Yeah, you go to swim meets. And you have to hit a certain time criteria in order to make the Olympic trials swim meet. Um, once you make that criteria, then you send in documentation and you get to go to the Olympic trials. You're at the Olympic trials. After the morning swim, you have to be top eight. In order gotcha. to make the Olympic team, you have to win. Oh, wow. That's how you make it. There are wow. other ways, right? So if you swim the 100 freestyle, or the 200 freestyle, the top four will automatically be picked. The reason is they need a relay. So they gotcha. pick those top four. 
Then if certain people start making more than one event, then they'll start picking number two in the events, like the 50 free, the 100 butterfly. Um, and then that's how they make a team. It's cool. They'll never gotcha. go below second place. So literally you have to win or get second place in the country in order to go to the Olympics. Wow. That is a high bar. So, so tell me about uh, during this process, where did school fit in? School. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. So like when I was a high schooler, it was easy, right? Because it was all in the same building and it was just easy. All your friends were going to class. Now you get to college and it becomes a little more difficult because you yeah. now you're on your own for the first time. So you're learning how to be an adult human being. You've got all these other distractions going on, plus school, plus swimming. So basically what we did was, you know, you wake up in the morning and again, we swim two hours. This is as we got progressed. We would be in the weight room for an hour and a half and then swimming again after um, all of that for another two hours. So gotcha. school fit in anytime be after morning practice, before evening practice, or after evening practice. So there was just a very small yeah. little time window. So that's why athletes get to pick their classes first. Gotcha. Because we really are limited in when we can take our classes. You know, I know people got a little upset at that. Um, not that I would rub that in their face ever. I would never yeah, yeah, ever yeah. do anything. <laughs> but so that's how we did it. And then after practice, if you didn't have a class, there were study tables that you had to go to. Okay. And so you would be there and they would know that you were studying and your coach would get your attendance on study tables and all of that. And Yeah, and where was this that you were going to school now? So I went to the University of Arizona for my first two and a half years. Gotcha. Then I transferred and went to Colorado State and oh. um, I ended up finishing up there. It was So awesome. you went up to Fort Collins, is that right? That's where, yeah. yeah I did, yeah, yeah. Fort Fun, have you been? Oh, oh yes. I used to, I, I lived for a time in Greeley and then uh, down near the Denver Tech Center for a while. It's been about 12 years. I love Colorado. I absolutely loved my time there. It's different, right? Like Fort Collins is yes. definitely a college town. Yes. And I love the energy. Uh, if I were to move back to Colorado, I would either move to Boulder or to Fort Collins. Yep. The reason being both of those are college towns and both amazing towns both offer something completely different. It brings a lot of culture into the community that otherwise wouldn't be there. It really Absolutely, does. Absolutely, yeah. yes. And I'll tell you what, you walk around there and you just feel energized by these kids. The other thing that that I'm really curious about is uh, what you were studying and what you thought. I mean, did you think this was a career of swimming or what were you thinking after I win four gold medals and you know knock everybody back on their rockers? Uh, what am I going to do then? So that was interesting because I am very dyslexic. Um, I oh. don't, not only do I have letter number reversal, but I also do not have phonics at all. Wow. And so even though I know a word, I know the definition, I can't read it. So it would cause a lot of problems in my comprehension. Um, and so through that, um, I knew I had to do something that didn't require a lot of, um, foreign language. But when I went to gotcha. the University of Arizona, I still needed a year of foreign language. Um, they told me that sign language is considered a foreign language. So I took sign language. So my ultimate goal was I wanted to teach high school biology students in the deaf community. That's very cool. It, it turns out that I have, uh, uh, first of all, I was born uh, pretty hard of hearing. I've got hearing aids on both sides. In my family had uh, American Sign Language deafness. In other words, uh, not my immediate family, but yes. 
and unfortunately, I never learned it. Uh, I really wish that I had because I'm deaf enough now. I'd like to use it with my wife. <laughs> you know, I, you know, it's really hard sometimes to understand. Uh, she tells me she that will, that's I, a good thing. <laughs> you know that it is anyway because if you're like me and you've been married so long, that tone of that other human's voice, all of a sudden you lose that tone. <laughs> oh yeah, it disappears into the background noise, right? Uh, but that's really cool. That that uh, are you still able to sign? Do you still do it now? Or I I know some signs enough to get me by, but not like I did. Yeah, you know? and it, yeah. it really breaks my heart. And they do say if you don't use it, you lose it. And yes, I mean it's so like any on. language. Yeah. Yes, and I'm telling you, you guys, if, if people who are watching slash listening, if you take a foreign language, please stay with it because you will lose it within a year. And all of that studying is just- It, it really is. And I, I made the mistake of hopping around too much. I took German and French and Spanish, and now I don't know where words come from and I can't remember any of them well enough to, to communicate, but- uh... I took German as well. And I've got a friend who lives in Germany and I used my German on him. And what he told me, I said, I will not repeat because it was not- <laughs> I thought I was saying something very lovely, and apparently it was not. So not lovely, not lovely. We'll yes, move on I, from that. <laughs> it is easy to make those kinds of mistakes in foreign languages. So, uh, at, so we've got uh, we've got your career path that you had thought you had lined out for yourself. We've got you now getting uh, ready to go to the Olympics. Right. So was there a moment? that was just surreal after you realized that you were actually going to go to the Olympics? What did that feel like? It was so crazy because it was something that from the time I was six, right, was in my body somewhere because I obviously had some sort of talent. It was obviously in my brain somewhere, right? So this had yeah. been cultivated for so long. And so the thing that's cool is that I made it at the University of Indiana and they had a big, huge wall, and they would write every person's name who made the Olympic team on the wall. And wow. in 1996, I am the second woman on there. Wow. Even to this day to look at it, just surreal. I got chills. I couldn't believe it. Uh, you know, I was like, this is like, I'm going to be a Matt Biondi or a Janet Evans that I had watched when I was a kid and said, yeah. I want to do that someday. Right. Yeah, and yeah. so here I was, and it was amazing. And then to find out my teammate was Janet Evans, right. Who had <laughs> gone to the Olympics since I think they started. And yeah. this was her last games. It was my first games. She's only a year older. And so the things I learned from her were just spectacular. But the thing that really hit me was when I got the uniform, because now you've got this American flag on your cap with your last name on it and an American oh flag on your chest. Yeah. And you're like, this is real. <laughs> Indeed. I should be a lot more aware, but where were the Olympics that first year that you- They were in Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, there was a lot that went on there. A I remember, lot that wasn't went there, on there. That was the bombing and uh, yes. Yeah. And my parents, because it was the night that I broke history, became the first American woman ever to yeah. win four golds. So my parents have a USA Today that was run before the bombing, which was me doing the, and it said forever gold. Yeah. And then they got the actual run of the USA Today, which was bombing, bombing, bombing. Oh. Little note down here, by the way, Amy made history. So it just kind of shows you how it really did shape those Olympics. Yeah. And I, it was the last night of swimming. 
I was supposed to go to like a celebration party with myself and Michael Johnson and Dan O'Brien, names from the past, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I decided I was going to go and change. So I went back to the village and I went to McDonald's because I was hungry. And I was talking to security guards and there they started squawking. Everything started squawking and beeping yeah. and buzzing. And they were like, Amy, go to your dorm room right now. And I remember we all had pagers. This was pre-cell phone. Yeah, yes, And we yes. were paging everybody where to go because they weren't letting anybody else back in the Olympic Village. So there I was with the team managers. We were like the only people that were still there because everyone else dispersed from swimming to go to parties and see their parents and all the things. So we're trying to get them all back. And it was really scary because we didn't know if something else was going to happen. Yeah, we knew yeah. that, speaking of Janet Evans, we knew she was in Olympic Park doing interviews. Mm. So we were worried for her. Yeah. Again, it was so scary. But yeah, a lot of things happened during those games. Before that experience, talk to us a little bit about what it's like to be in the Olympic Village as an athlete. I don't know if you want to know. The rumors <laughs> are true. So yeah, the Olympic Village, though, is really, really cool because you ha everyone has their own building, uh, whatever kind of building it was. In Atlanta, we had um, dorm buildings, right? So it was a high right. rise. And then in Australia, which was my last Olympics, um, they were like houses. So me and my roommate were living in the garage. Okay. Which yeah. They did really nicely. But everyone's got like an American flag if they're the American house, or they've got the Jamaican flag if they're Jamaican. Right, right. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. you walk through and you see all of these different flags, and then you see all the athletes, and you're talking to everybody, and everybody's trading, you know, memorabilia, and everyone's signing autographs and taking pictures. And it really is, um, a special thing because you understand yeah. that that person that you're talking to has just done something amazing. Yeah. But you have too in order to be talking to them. So yeah. it's just such a crazy, crazy deal. It really is. Um, but I will say when, when the sun goes down and the lights go off, get into your room, mm -hmm. hide, close your eyes. No, get, yep. it's yes. not that bad. It's not that bad, but, but it is fun. And you know, you do have all these athletes who are there who are in the t the peak of their physicality and yeah you know so sometimes and they're ready to see... bust out i'm sure particularly after their event is done yep yes and that's why they have all these parties and you know it's just yep. it really is fun it's a wonderful atmosphere yeah i would do it again in a heartbeat but you've got every, it's a it's also what people don't understand the the olympic village that is secure is its own city it yeah. actually i believe huh. has its own zip code during the games and we've got a grocery store. We've got McDonald's everywhere. We have got, um, in 96, we got a coin that we would put in Coke machines and get anything <laughs> you wanted. And then it would pop back out. And so you I'll could just darned. do it over and over. So you a reusable coin. <laughs> yeah, a reusable coin. Yeah. yeah and then we've got yeah. barber shops in there. We've got beauty salons that you can get your hair done, your nails done. You can get a facial and massage. That is crazy. It really is. But I tell you what, everybody there has worked their tail off to get there. So more yep. power to you. I mean, that's well, uh, uh, earned it is, is basically it, how I feel about thank that. You. Yeah. I earned that coin that comes back out. Yeah, that, <laughs> re yeah, that reusable coin. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, so after that Olympics, what were you thinking? Did you think you'd come back again? Could you not resist it? Or At first, I thought I wasn't going to come back. Because I, I was traveling so much, doing all the, you know, the Wheaties box, the milk ad, the things everywhere. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't home at all. And so I just thought, I, I can't train. I've lo I'm losing all my muscle. 
um, because I lose weight really quickly. Um, And so I just didn't think I could do it. And then I went to an event and actually it was for my sister. My sister went to a conference swim meet and I was there. And I remember I went up to my college coach, John Matos, who was coaching Colorado State. I said, hey, John, I, I have a question. Do yeah. you think that you could train me for 2000? And he was like, I think we can get you ready. Let's go. And that's when it was when I saw my baby sister swimming. Oh, that, that is a great story. So did you did you uh, believe that you were going to get gold again in the second time around? Or I didn't think I was going to make the team. I had had two shoulder surgeries that were supposed to end my career, right? I tore my labrum and I tore it pretty wow. good. Yeah. And because if you think about it, right, so a pit, it was a pitcher's injury. So I'm a sprinter. So what a pitcher does is basically how we pull through the water, right? We put that same amount of torque. Yeah, now a pitcher yeah. may throw 100 balls in a game. How many of those are fastballs? Let's say 70%, right? But every single stroke that I take puts that same torque on it. And so we tear labrums a lot. And so I ended up tearing my labrum, and I didn't get it fixed right away. So my whole capsule had, mm. you know, stretched Start out. So up, yeah. Yeah, so I had that thermal capsule reduction they were doing back in the day, and I they repaired my labrum. Um, and then 18 months later, I got back in the pool, re-injured myself. So six months to the day of Olympic trials starting, I had my second shoulder surgery, and everyone was like, you're done. And I'm like, yeah, uh, no, yeah. I'm not. So I went back to trials, and I didn't think I was going to make the team in anything. And the fact that I did, and I swam three races and got two gold medals was beyond anything I could have imagined. That is incredible. That really is. That is, uh, uh, I don't know if it's grit, guts, or what you call that, but that's, you know, after those kinds of injuries, coming back after that is not an easy task. It's called stupidity is what it's called. <laughs> <laughs> is your shoulder, how is your shoulder work today? It's perfect. And the thing that's crazy is I now live life in a wheelchair, so I use my arms a lot, and yeah. the shoulder is held up great. What I was thinking is, wow, if you've got a chronic injury there, that would be a problem, wouldn't it? Well, I, we hadn't gotten to the part where uh, uh, the accident that that put you in the wheelchair, and, and I do want to talk about that and your experiences uh-huh. afterwards, if you're open to that. Absolutely. Uh, after the second Olympics... What was the uh, what were you doing and how long did you do it and what were you thinking before the accident? Uh, so after the games, I knew I was done. Um, so I went back to Colorado and um, got engaged to a man who was playing for the Denver Broncos, uh, number sixteen in your program, number one in your heart. Um, <laughs> and so <laughs> I was actually doing some TV work um, back then and uh, some Commentary, radio work. that kind of thing or, or... No, so, uh, at that time I was doing more like in-depth um, stories packages. Gotcha. Okay. So I did one, it was a six part series on drugs and sports, a lethal combination is yeah. what it was called. So yeah. we looked at from professional athletes all the way down to elementary school kids and it was heartbreaking. Wow. So I did things like that and I loved it, loved it. Elementary um, school kids, no kidding. Mm-hmm. It wow. was awful to hear these stories. Yeah. And yeah. is that because there's so much pressure to perform even at that age? Correct. And you will find it a lot um, in situations like mine where you couldn't go to college unless you get a scholarship. So you get a scholarship. Gotcha. Gotcha. And it was just heartbreaking. The whole thing was up for an Emmy for uh, for that year. So it was really, it was cool to, to have yeah, that. But, yeah. Um, so yeah, I loved doing that. But then I kind of fell into at the same time doing sports radio 
Yeah. And I was the sideline reporter for the Broncos, which my husband was playing for the Broncos at the time. Oh, yeah. So it was really weird. I had to report on my husband. But um, so I did that. And then I started doing the NFL on Fox games. Gotcha. And mm-hmm. so when I first started doing the Seahawks, no one really know, knew who I was because we came from the Broncos and whatever. And right. Mm-hmm. So after the pregame warm up, the guys went into the locker room and they were talking about that cute new sideline reporter. <laughs> so they were all taking bets as to who was going to take me home. Oh my goodness, yes. So my husband goes, I will bet each of you in here $100 that I take her home tonight. <laughs> like, whatever ruins, forget oh you. Oh my gosh. You know, all these, yeah, you never. So that night, you know, we're done with the game. He's all cleaned up. I, I've done my stuff. And he's like, let's go to the team meal. I'm like, you never want to go to the team meal. What's going on? He's like, let's oh, just go. Yes. All of a sudden, I hear Tommy whistles and everyone turns around and the team, no way, ruin, no way. And he's like, by the way, guys, I want you to meet my wife, Amy. <laughs> I love that story. Oh, <laughs> that's, was, that's dastardly. Have... That really it is was, dastardly. But yeah. we got free dinner for the whole season. It was great. <laughs> it was awesome. Oh, that's funny. And, well, I and, did uh, that. And then when he was done, I got into to morning radio, like that morning shock jock stuff. Huh. Um, and really? I felt that I really... Oh, well, yeah. you're, you're a natural. That's obvious from the moment I started talking to you. I mean, you you know how to do this stuff and how to talk and keep things interesting. And it, it just seems to flow. I mean, you know, it, well, it, well, has that always been there? Uh, yes. My, my, my mom is like, you're going to be a performer when you're when you grow up. And I'm like, <laughs> I am not. I'm going to be a veterinarian. I'm going to save all the animals. Yeah. Here we are. <laughs> yeah. No, you're 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 obviously a natural. So thank you. Uh, so were you doing morning radio when the accident occurred? Walk us through that timeline. What happened? And so I was actually um, at the time I was working for Fox. Okay. And I was doing the Olympics for 2012, the London Olympics. Um, I was fronting a whole bunch of shows. <laughs> um, and then I was on set at the Olympics. At the same time. I was on Fox Sports Radio. What was really cool is, yes, we were nationwide. Yes, we were on Sirius XM. I was the only female voice. Aside from, we had Deb Carson who would read the news, but I was the only female voice on that network that was on a show. And uh, I was working with a great guy, Rob Dibble, who was a pitcher back in the day, Cincinnati Reds. He was one of the nasty boys. He's just fabulous. Um, And... That's when I got hurt. Was was right when we were doing that. Tell us if, if you know whatever you're uh, willing to tell us about how that occurred. I, I don't want to walk you through things that are unnecessarily painful, but uh... oh no, no, it's it's totally fine. So it was June sixth of twenty fourteen, and my husband and I had taken a vacation, and we had a house in the mountains in Arizona. Ah. So we went up there, and it's a golf course community. So you know, once once the gates close behind you. You park your car and then, you know, you take whatever golf cart or a hoverboard or ATV motorcycle to get around. Right. Yeah. And so that morning I actually, I went to CrossFit. That's what I do. And I met the guy who owned the gym and he was talking, telling me how he's a firefighter and all the things. I'm like, okay, DJ, I'll see you later. I remember I went home and later in the day we were deciding where we were going to go for dinner. Right. And we decided we were going to go to a place that was kind of close by. It was like a quarter of a mile away. We, we walked there a thousand times. We could have walked there that night. Yeah. And my husband, Tom, was like, why don't we take the truck? And I'm like, babe, we, we've been living in L.A. And no offense to people who live in L.A., but I was like, I want fresh air on my to breathe in. Like, look, yeah, I want to yeah, take yeah. my ATV. You take your motorcycle. And he's like, OK, fine. So we did. And we had dinner. And as soon as dinner was over, 
he would normally get on his motorcycle and take off in front of me. But had he done that this night, I wouldn't be here because he wouldn't have found me. So he said, babe, go ahead. I'll see you at home. We were going to go home, watch Game of Thrones. So I started off ahead and he said, he looked up and he was like, what the hell is she doing? He said, there wasn't an arm movement. There wasn't a screech. There wasn't a flicker of a brake light. I hit a curb and went over a six foot cliff. And I don't remember anything from the time I pushed my chair in at dinner and I'm thankful. Um, when he ran over and looked down, um, he's, I was face down and he could see my back was broken. So he got down there. He was yelling for someone. There was a guy who had been at dinner who was a doctor, but apparently he had been drinking, so he didn't want to get near me, which was fine. I get it. So he called 911. 911 uh, went to a firefighter station, and the guy was like, listen, we're calling in flight for life. All they heard was it was a head injury. They didn't know it was a back injury at all. Gotcha. Because when my husband had rolled me over and I wasn't breathing, he lifted up my neck and I started convulsing and my eyes were going two different directions for a long time. And like I would say the same thing over and over and over. So anyway, Flight for Life gets there. My first responder gets there who happened to be the guy that owned that CrossFit gym that I worked out at that morning. Oh, wow. And yeah. And he, they put me in Flight for Life and he told my husband, he's like, just be prepared. She probably won't be like, she probably won't remember you because they thought my head, they weren't even worried about my back. They were worried about my head. And my doctor says that once he got my scans, he shut down that trauma center and any trauma center he could have been called to. So of course me, I go, why was it because I won gold medals? And he's like, no, honey, it was really bad. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, that had nothing to do with it. I'm guessing he knew he was going to be there for a while. Not a thing. And when you look at the x-rays, it wasn't good. So had I been moved wrong or whatever, I actually would have punctured my aorta. Um, he Oof. said he was working in nanometers, wasn't sure he would get in yet. Well, here we are. He's fantastic. So Dr. Toomey Allen, we love you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I remember waking up right before surgery and he was like, and it was matter of fact, I'm going to try to get you out. I don't know if it's going to happen. You need to say goodbye to your husband now. Oh my goodness. And I did. Yeah. And I remember he whispered to me, he's like, if it's too much, you can let go. And I'm like, oh, no, you are not getting rid of me that easily, Mr. Ruin. Forget you. <laughs> so, yeah, he probably that did that knowing. fighting spirit, you know. I, it, it, I, I, so arduous rehab. And uh, I, I can't remember if you were at, at uh, was it Craig or Spalding or one of the? Craig, yeah. Yeah, know. Craig, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I used to round over there, uh, you know, at, at one point in my career. And it's a tough go. I mean, it's not for the faint of heart. Now, obviously, you've got a lot of fire within you uh, to get to where you got uh, in the Olympics. And and my guess is that's what you had to call on again. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. And which was harder? The Olympics or? Wow. I would say the rehab. and the And here's why, right? Because... At the Olympics, I'm training to win a piece of metal. Yeah. But in rehab, I'm training to get my life back. Yeah. So yeah. it's there was more, I guess, more at stake. So it meant a lot more to me. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But that's cool. You used to round over there. That what a small world. That's cool. I know it is. It is indeed. And um, so, walk us through your experience of rehab how long did it take what what were the milestones that you look back on now and and uh, you know had it, how long uh were you in mourning uh if you were in mourning at all and 
and how did you get how did you get oriented for recovery i guess is the best way to say that so i as i said i died a few times in this accident and that's why i have this tattoo on my wrist which is a phoenix rising from the ashes and then underneath it it's the last time one of my heart rate went wonky when i passed away and it goes into my normal sinus rhythm so if I'm having a bad day, I can look at it and go, suck it up, buttercup. It's been worse. <laughs> right? Yeah. So yes. I think through that, somehow, I knew that it was special to be around. Man. So even when I was in the ICU, I remember the nurse coming in one day when my book club was there. And she's like, Carl, this, the, this is the intensive care unit, not a sorority house. You need to be quiet. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so, But I knew that I was here for a reason. I didn't know what the reason was. Um, and I knew that I had been sent back, <laughs> if you will, right? And no matter what you believe in, right? I was sent back from good and I was probably sent back from bad. So you come back and you go, I got to get my life together. Yeah, no <laughs> so kidding. Wow. I, I just knew that I needed to do something with this that has just been handed to me. The weird thing is when, when I was getting ready to get out of ICU, they put me in a wheelchair and I felt really comfortable. It was weird. <laughs> it was really huh. weird. Like I knew how to do it. I, it's weird. Yeah. So I always felt comfortable. Almost like a um, destiny thing. Uh, yeah. It's is that how very, it felt? Yeah. Very weird. Almost like I've been here, but I don't know what people believe in, but if you believe it, like almost like it's like I've done it before. Yeah. Yeah. Which is Interesting. weird. But yeah. after, gosh, I want to say three weeks in ICU, I went to Craig Hospital and it was awful. That first night I was crying hysterically. I was in so much pain. I had just been moved from Arizona to Colorado with a broken back. And yeah. I didn't have any family around me because all my family from Colorado is in Arizona yeah. for me. So yeah. I had nobody and I was just really upset and it was really hard. And I think like if you have a mourning period, I think that might've been it, gotcha. you know, where I just lost it and I could, yeah. they couldn't control me. They gave me all the meds. Nothing was working. I was that yeah. jacked up. Yeah. But then the next morning, I was like, you know what? We've got to do this. You need to learn how, how to put your pants on. You need to learn how to bend over in your wheelchair. You need to learn how to drive and get your independence back. So from that moment on, I looked at it like I looked at swimming training. Every day you wake mm. up, every day you have the same breakfast, the same lunch, the same dinner, which got annoying to the meal people, I'm sure. sure. Yeah. I'm sure they were all like, Amy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I would do that. And, and I knew that I was there for a purpose. My family was around, my husband was around, but I really didn't focus on them. I was focusing on getting better. And it got to the point where they told me I was probably going to be there for three months and they kicked me out at two. So Good for you. I was yeah. doing pretty well. That's an well. amazing I... recovery. That is. It really is. Thank you. And I want to I go back to something you just said about having the same meal when you're in training, in this case, in training for recovery and in the other case, in training for the Olympics. Uh, you know, it, is this the same principle that, what was it, uh, uh, Steve Jobs used to wear exactly the same thing every day? It reduces the amount of choices you have to make, and so it allows you to focus? Is that? It's, it almost, for me, reduces the stress. Because now I don't need to worry about what I'm going to eat, how is it going to adjust with my system, because now I've got a new system, yeah. um, and all of that. It just took it away, because I gotcha. knew. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And, and what I have learned since is that a lot of high-functioning people tend to do that. I'm not saying I am, but I'm saying that high-functioning people tend to do that 
so that that is one less thing that is a worry in their world. So I guess I kind of took that on as almost like, okay, I know I need to worry about A, B, A, B, C, D through W. Right. I don't need this. I guess it was kind of like that. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. You know, I, so I don't know. I think it was Obama too, who wore the same suit every day or it something like been. that. It might have been to limit. Look at me. Uh, the, yeah, limit that. You know, what am I going to? You know, it just takes it off the table. I'm going to uh, tell everybody that I know that you just equated me with Steve Jobs and President Obama, and because the world is just now in a perfect place. <laughs> you feel free to do exactly that, <laughs> and I hold you in equal esteem to both of those. Frankly, after what you've done. I mean, seriously, you're an amazing human being to accomplish what you've accomplished, to have that kind of setback for an athlete, and then to come through it with the uh, uh, with the grace and skill that you have. Amazing job. It really is. It truly is. I appreciate um, you. Thank you. And I'm really interested in the, in the mental piece of this. Physically, we know it dramatically changed what you can do, how quickly you can do it, uh, you know, there have to be accommodations. You're, you're beholden to elevators. I think I saw at one point you were, we were talking about the elevators in Denver. Uh, and, and it's like, guys, you don't understand. If this elevator doesn't work, I don't cross the street. Right. And, and, and so things like that, I understand, are frustrating. We can get into that in a minute. But mentally, how did it change you? I used to be, well, and I still am type A. I think you may have gotten that from some of our- Got that picture, yeah. Um, and I used to be very on time and had to be done this way and blah, 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 blah. I, don't, I can't do that anymore because now I have to kind of fly by the seat of my pants, if you will. Uh, if something happens, um, I need to be able to kind of adjust my world around that. Yeah. If an elevator's broken, I need to adjust my world. Now, when I go places, I think three steps ahead. Okay, what if this happens, that happens, this happens, right? So I'm almost still visualizing. Visualizing, so that yes, I, that's right. Yeah. So I can solve my problem, right? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I couldn't do that before. I was always a on the go, move fast, let's go, get it done type of person. And now I can't do that because right. even though I do still drive a Camaro SS, which stands for super sexy, <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I still drive my Camaro, but it does still take a minute to put the wheelchair in the car. So I can't do that hustle and bustle anymore. Yeah. And I do think that it's kind of helped mentally. You know, that's interesting. And I've, I've, uh, I've read other uh, accounts of folks who have been through something similar that uh, they almost perceived it as a message to slow down. It's like you're going too fast. You know, uh, here's a little help in slowing down. Yeah. The kind of help yeah. none of us wants to wish on ourselves or anybody else, but Correct. they've turned it into something positive, uh, uh, or if not positive, a growth opportunity, I guess, is the way I, I think about it. And that... I think it's absolutely right. And, you know, whenever I hear from people, um, you know, that something's happened in their life and whatever, the first thing I say before I say anything is please take care of you. Yeah. Right? You need people need to slow down and take care of themselves. Cuz think about this, you know, if you've got a anyone in the hospital or or dealing with something, they're being taken care of. Right? They're they've got their needs met, but yes. you do not. So yeah. you need to take care of yourself. And I always stress that and you know, I hope people listen, but but that's a big one for a lot of people who are caregivers. They need a break. Yeah, you know what, Amy, that's incredibly uh, insightful. That That's the message that I used to give to families of 
folks that were in the ICU. It's like, you know, we've got this. We'll call you if anything changes. But I've seen time and again families lose sleep and get sick themselves because they're so concerned about their family member. And it's not an easy thing to do. But what you bring it around home uh, or bring it home with is, oh, yeah, the caregiver uh, needs to think about that, too. And and that's often missed uh, Mm -hmm. uh, for, you know, physicians tend to be pretty driven folk, uh, as it turns out. And so I think that's part of our burnout problem is is self-management. I do always tell you, doctors and nurses especially, and I know uh, some nurses have told me that they do have a place where they can go and cry. But, you know, you guys have to just, you know, you take so much on and so much home. And so you guys are the ones that really, you know, yes, the caregivers, but also the people who are helping the patient need to take care of themselves and not just physically, mentally. You know, if you need to talk to somebody or whatever, please do it. Please do it for those of you listening. Absolutely. That's key. And, and. Uh, critical to uh, thriving, if not survival. Yes, absolutely. You've overcome this thing now to the point that you are mobile again and you're back being Amy. Yep. And uh, so what did you decide to do from there? (laughs) Uh, I am going around the world trying to change the world one person at a time, right? So Good um, for you. I give motivational speeches, you know, telling people like, listen, yes, you're having a crappy day. Like, let's learn how to handle it. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah. don't make it make it a moment. Don't make it a day because, you know, you don't know what's around the corner. And if you're That's a sourpuss, right, I don't know. I don't want on my tombstone. She was a sourpuss. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I don't be, yeah. you know, and, and I feel like almost like if you're in that mood and you pass away, people are going to be like, well, I was fighting with her. She was angry at blah, blah, blah. Make it a moment yeah, yeah. and learn from the moment so that when it pops up again, you go, got this, and this is how I'm going to do it. You don't make it a day. Yeah. Not worth yeah that's... It. So I do that, and I also, you know, um, through my my injury, um, I've got really significant neuropathic pain. Some of us do, some of us don't. Mm. And I do, from belly button to tippy toes, both sides, all oh. over. And so when it flares up, it's bad. And so, of course, the answer to that when you're in the hospital is give you more pain meds, give you more pain yeah. meds. So I run around the country trying to tell people that there are alternatives that can help. Yeah, talk to me about that a little bit, because obviously we've got an opioid crisis. We've got folks that don't know how to handle pain except to pop a pill. What do you do to manage that? What advice would you have for folks that have chronic pain? You know, I would say to find a wonderful pain management doctor that can work with you. Um, I had seen a few, and again, the opioids just kept getting higher and higher and higher to the point where I was not myself at all. My husband was really worried. Yeah. And my neurosurgeon who saved my life that night, um, recommended the pain management doctor I see now. And I remember going into his office that first time, right? You're meeting a doctor for the first time. You're so nervous, all the things. He's like, what's your goal? And I said, well, I want to get off this stuff. Yeah. And he goes, okay, I'm going to sit down for a minute. I'm going to tell you something. And I want you to understand that I've got you through this process and I'm going to help you through this. But Oxy does not help nerve pain. Yeah. And it kind of makes it worse. Yeah. And I was like, I was on 180 milligrams twice a day. Oh, my goodness. Here I am now. I hear this and I'm like, oh, my gosh, how is this going to happen? So I got off of that. And I'm not going to say it was an easy process. And you know, and anyone who's probably listening to this understands that process, right? So we don't need to go into it. Um, but once I got off of them, you know, now he does spinal injections. Um, he does ablations on me. Um, then he'll do in between that, like some cortisone to kind of 
calm everything down. Yes. Mm -hmm. I do take some medicine. It still wasn't really making it go away to the point where I wasn't in pain 24-7. And so, you know, I had heard about medical cannabis. And I was like, no, 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 no. Nancy <laughs> Reagan told us, this is our brain on drugs. Do not, uh, don't do it. And I had a friend who was like, I'm going to be with you. Here we go. And I took half a gummy. Let me tell you what, it felt like a warm wave. And for the first time, I wasn't in pain. Wow. Like, it was there, but it yeah, didn't really yeah. bother me. <laughs> yeah. No, that's you very know? cool. Yeah. yeah. And so I just want people to understand that cannabis may not be for them. But there are other things out there besides opiates that can take care of your pain. Yes. But you've just, you've got to work with a doctor, do your own research and, you know, be your own best advocate. And that's all I can tell you. But, you know, when you are living in constant pain, it is awful. I am there with you. So many other people are there with you and just know that it does get better and you can find something that will help and give you relief. Yeah. And, and you have to just keep at it. I mean, it, sometimes it can be frustrating to find the magic formula and, and it's a little bit different for everybody. Yeah, it really is. I mean, you find that, especially with our in our spinal cord injury community, everyone's different, even if you have the same x-ray, right? Yeah. So what works for me is probably not going to work for somebody else, but I can at least let them know that there is an option and to look into it. You know, this computer... Yeah. It's just so tired of looking up all that stuff when it was going down, yeah. right? You know, I found what works for me, but maybe through my story, you'll hear something and it triggers in them and they go, oh, I can get off of that too. And I want to try X, Y, and Z. So that's another thing that I'm trying to do because I've had a lot of friends who were taking their medications as prescribed and they OD'd. Yes. I want to tell you what I was on. I mean, I was on OxyContin. I was on a muscle relaxer and I was on 10 milligrams of Ambien. Yeah, I have no that's idea. A lot. It's a lot. But that's what my friends were on, the same thing. And it's just sad. So I don't want to, you know, make it seem like, oh, ho-hum. But just research things. Do yeah, things that are better yeah. for you. You know, yeah, there's absolutely. Also, always an alternative. I, the other thing that comes to mind, and, I, you know, obviously it doesn't solve everything, but you have some amazing mental powers. Do you use that in, in, in pain management? How do you think about that? In my pain management, it's very hard for me because that is probably one of the most frustrating parts of this whole endeavor for me is the pain, right? And so when it is happening and it gets really bad, sometimes that's all I can think about and I can't make it go away or is anything gotcha. else any other pain in my body i can make it go away i right. can't make it go away so all the mental capacity that i have um it does not do anything for that now i do have friends yeah. who can who, who can sit and meditate and it goes away uh, neuropathic pain is notorious for being resistant to to just about everything and, it is and, and we and and sadly we lose a lot of people that have it yeah you know because they feel hopeless and they feel helpless and they're just tired of it. I mean, it is a 24 or seven yeah. thing that you're dealing with, you know? And, you know, that's why I want to run around the country and tell people that it, there are things that can make it a little better. Hang well, in there. I'm so, I'm so happy that you're doing that. I mean, that's an amazing way to turn uh, what happened to you into a positive for so many other people. And that's a, a generous spirit that, uh, that allows you to do that. And a heck of a lot of energy, I can sense as well. Uh, so that's impressive. I, 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 I have uh, one last question, but healthcare is frustrating for many people because just navigating it. Have you 
Do you have insights or uh, opinions about the way the system works today and how it might work better? Well, here's what I want to tell people, and, and I tell people all, all this this all the time. A lot of people are talking about they want socialized medicine, right? Which, on the surface, yes, it looks great. But I was talking to some some of my friends in Canada, and they were like, Amy, you wouldn't even be seen yet, almost nine years later, for your nerve pain. Hmm. Well, I wouldn't have made it. I wouldn't have made it. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so we need to look at that, right? Like if you're if if an older parent gets cancer, they're going to see them as terminal no matter what, and just you know don't have time for them. So our system is is pretty good compared to some other ones, right? Um, it is frustrating. Doctors are overworked. Nurses are overworked. We've got a shortage. Everyone had to live through COVID. That is working in in, in the hospitals and in doctors' offices, and I don't think that they're given the respect that they deserve for that. Um, so they get stressed out. And I think that's where you see a lot of the problem within the healthcare system. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. So right now I'm waiting for a call back from a doctor for, I popped a stitch and I got a tube coming out of my body. It's really cute. Um, <laughs> but you know, I've been, I've been waiting since 8am. <laughs> oh my but goodness. Yes. Okay. I would show yeah. you, but it would be a little, uh, yeah, yeah. but you know, I've been waiting for a call back since 8am and right now it's after three. And so that can get frustrating. Right. Um, but I think what I would tell patients is to just understand what your healthcare professionals have gone through, right? When we were all sitting on our sofas watching the Tiki Talks or the U YouTubes or, you know, doctors and nurses were busting their ass trying to, pardon my language, trying to help those of us who had the virus, not knowing if it was going to end their life or someone else's. Yeah, they didn't yeah. know. And they're exhausted. They were working, you know, 48 hour shifts. And then you guys come in there, you know, complaining that they're 15 minutes late for your appointment. Stop. Just everybody give everybody a break. And I yeah. really feel that if you can remember that, the system is overwhelmed right now. It really is. And you're right. And and uh some of the negativity and and even violence that's been perpetrated against caregivers is unconscionable. I mean, these are people that uh, are really dedicated. And, you know, I, there are a lot of problems in our health system. Uh, I agree with you that uh, that I don't see the solution as, uh, uh, you know, Medicare for all. I don't think that that's, uh, I think that locks in a flawed system, frankly. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of problems that we've got to deal with, but uh, it's not the people. You know, it's it, 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 their system issues that we can correct. The people that I know in healthcare are dedicated and really want to do the right thing. And they're, the reason they're burning out is because the system is not aligned with their values anymore. Uh, and, and so we've got some work to do. There's no question. Uh, but gosh, it, it isn't the people. Stop pointing no. fingers and thinking, you know, evil doctor, evil executive. It really isn't. It's no. uh, it's the system. Yeah. It is the system, and, and it's too bad. So everybody, just give everybody a break, you know? Yeah, just that's the best way to say it. Think about how you would like to be treated in that moment. And listen, you know, I was in the hospital for a few days, just you know, not too long ago, which is why I had the tube coming out of me. It's fine. We don't need to talk about it. Um, uh, but I just remember some of the nurses would come in just exasperated. Yeah. And, like, I would let them just sit and talk because, remember, they're human beings, too. Yeah. And I know that you're not feeling good. And sometimes we get grumpy and we snap at people when you're not feeling good. But just yes. take a moment and realize that, yes, you don't feel good, but this nurse is going to be with you right now for five to ten minutes. Give that human being a break. Yeah. Give them yeah. a break because they were trying to save the world when you were watching Tiki Talk. 
I bet they loved coming to see you, is my guess. The nurses. Well, it was uh, a hot mess. Hey, listen, I got in trouble so much so that they had to put an alarm on my bed so I wouldn't get up. <laughs> yeah, you are hard to keep in the room, I'm sure. I am. Well, I know where they hide the ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> you're a very dangerous woman. You are. I am. See, when you're in the hospital for so long, you know the ins and outs of where the stuff is. So you yeah. go in, you know, you, you could borrow a soda from someone. <laughs> Amy, you are a delight to talk to, and you've been very generous with your time. I am so excited that I got a chance to meet you and to talk with you. It's a highlight of my year, and and I just uh, I, I I'm so grateful that you agreed to to come on and talk with me. And I've learned a bunch today and validated some things that I thought, and and uh, you know maybe give some second thoughts to some other notions that I had based on what you shared with us today. So just thank you so much for being you and uh, keep fighting the good fight. And if there's any way that I can help down the road, you just, or tomorrow, uh, let me know and I'll do my very best. I really appreciate you and uh, and the company you keep as in Dr. Stroman. So uh, uh, thank you so much for, for being on uh, on the show today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was so, so much fun. And you are just a delight. I appreciate you. and. Anyone who rounded with spinal cord injury patients, you deserve your own gold medal because we are not an easy group. <laughs> well, you know, uh, life can be challenging sometimes for all of us, but uh, <laughs> you know, uh, hopefully uh, 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 we all give each other a break, as you suggest. I think that's the best uh, the best possible solution to that problem. And yeah. uh, again, Amy Van Dyken, uh, six gold medals to her credit. Amazing woman, an amazing story. And I think we're going to wrap it up there until next time. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Groves Connection, your connection to the inside story on healthcare, featuring in-depth interviews with those who know. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, give us a five-star review to keep the connection going and hit the subscribe button to be sure you never miss a beat. The Groves Connection is produced by Dr. Robert Groves. Original music, editing, and creative direction provided by Alden Groves. Production support, content guidance, courtesy of Janae Sharp and Elizabeth Barrett. Thank you for listening. The professional ideas and opinions expressed in this podcast are mine and do not reflect those of any current or past employers. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time on The Groves Connection.